Angie, tell our listeners who we're going to have as a guest today. I know she's quite accomplished as a creative educator. Yes, today we're going to have Nisha Gupta, and she's a psychologist, professor, researcher, and an artist. You know what? I'm really excited to have her as a guest because she actually teaches creativity, and she's going to share with us her philosophy on people's lived experiences. Sounds very interesting to me. You know, it's really interesting to me that the psychologists we've had on the show have been very creative in the visual arts. Hi everyone, and here we are celebrating what people love to do creatively by giving them a voice. I'm Rod Jones. And I'm Angie Jones. Welcome to the Thought Rope Podcast. We invite you to subscribe wherever you listen, and our episodes are always absolutely free to listen to. You can go directly to our website at thoughtropepodcast.com and listen to current and past episodes directly on the website. Now let's hear your quote and get things moving in a positive way. Okay, well, here is the quote. Don't think. Thinking is the enemy of creativity. It's self-conscious, and anything self-conscious is lousy. You can't try to do things. You must simply do things. And this is by Ray Bradbury. I wouldn't have never thought that quote came from him. Yeah. However, he's, uh, he's brilliant to what he writes. Yeah, he's really, uh, it, well, he's got a lot of good advice, too, so Well, you I, th- this this quote kind of means to me that we all overthink things, mm-hmm. um, and especially if we're listening to other people's opinions that can taint what we're actually thinking about. And when it comes to creativity, we'll talk ourselves in and out of what we're doing practically Absolutely. every minute. Absolutely. And then I like the the part where he says about being self-conscious in your thinking and doesn't that hinder everyone's uh, things that you want to do oh I can't do that because I I might look silly or I might not be talented enough and it's like you got to get to a point where you're like you know it doesn't matter you know what you can't really make mistakes you just do it and actually the more mistakes you make the better you become I mean everything that has ever been worthwhile was created Mm -hmm. through people making literally thousands of mistakes. I mean, we would not have computers today if it wasn't people making lots and lots of mistakes. True, true. So, okay, now it's going to be time for Rod's motivational moments. So, Rod, what do you have? Well, it kind of goes a little bit along with what you your quote was. Yeah. Uh, Thoughts are riders on the roller coaster of life. Look over and see who's in the car with you. Ooh, that's a good one. Well, I kind of think that that uh, we have somebody, life is like a roller coaster. I mean, people freely yeah, admit that. You have yeah. your ups and downs. And whoever's riding that car with you, like your subconscious mind or your conscious mind, is giving you feedback as you go up the hill and as you come down the hill. Mm-hmm. And you really want to make sure that person that's in that's riding in that car with you is a good guy or a good she mm-hmm. and somebody that is really... Uh, pepping you up, giving you encouragement, and being very supportive. True, true. And you you have to really monitor uh, the people and your thoughts and not have them right along with you when, you know, maybe you've been hurt or maybe you've been, uh, you know, put in a situation that was really uncomfortable. You have to, you know, I guess get past it. 
Yeah, look on. over at that person in that roller coaster car with you. Yeah, exactly. And make sure they're a good companion so and they're true. not afraid. Yeah, very true. Speaking of thoughts, mm-hmm. how about telling everyone about our creative journal? You know, the one that I grabbed immediately when we got it. <laughs> That's and so true. I carry it with me everywhere. Um, it's uh-huh. kind of a first for me. It is. I, you know, I. You were saying to me, I have never journaled. And what was funny is when we got the journal, we ordered it to, you know, to, so we could have a copy of it ourselves. And you were so fun about the way you did it. You tore it open like it was Christmas. <laughs> and then you grabbed the journal right out of the little envelope and you went and dashed and put it on your desk. So you claimed it right away. Yes. And I started to make entries in it. And I was glad to see you do that, actually. Well, that the interesting great. thing. Well, you t- talk, tell, tell our uh, listeners a little bit about it. Okay. Well, um, it is a a journal that we are now offering on our website, thoughtrowpodcast.com. And it's right on our front page. If you're curious, take a look at it. And it is a spiral spiral bound um, notebook journal where you can, there's a section that has lines on it. And then there's a section that's blank. So you can either write uh, or, you know, whatever you want to do with the line section. And the other, you can doodle, you can draw, you can make a story that goes with your drawing. It's very, it's very nice. It's very tell, versatile. Tell people what it's called. It's called All Your Thoughts in a Row Creative Journal. And like I said, it's available on the website. So check it out there. I've already been uh, making notes on it mm-hmm. and I've been writing in it. And um, and it's private to me. It is. And it's a great way to make sure you don't lose those creative thoughts because I know, I think a lot of people do this. You get all those nice little yellow sticky notes or scraps of paper or envelopes from your junk mail and you make notes and then you put them somewhere and you don't know where the heck you put them. Or they lose their stickiness and they end up a pile on the floor and then you are out of sequence. trash, yeah, at that point. I wanna make one other comment about this journal yeah. that I personally like. Yes. It's non-obtrusive. We didn't put a big fancy color image on the cover. Mm-mm. So when I've carried it around, it just looks like a little tiny booklet that you might make notes in and that's about it. It's a, it's a black book basically but it's very in- inconspicuous and you you have to fill it in with uh, your own creative thoughts and your own creative images because this is your creative book we did not put any special designs fancy designs on the inside very very deliberately so you need to put your input into it well for me i'm thinking it's a great way to wind down the year Mm -hmm. and i guess i have to say this it'd be a great gift item but it would it totally would a great stocking stuffer just a gift in general and we uh ship worldwide yeah so you know check it out order if you uh if you think you might like to express your creativity you know, yeah. we rarely associate creativity with genius, Yeah. although there certainly have been creative geniuses. I suppose uh, you and I would never argue the fact that mm-hmm. Beethoven and Einstein, although they were two di- in two different worlds, they yeah. were both creative geniuses in their own right. Oh, definitely they were. My gosh. And the things that they went through in their lives. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting that they just kept kind of going 
going forward and not getting stuck anywhere. I think the interesting thing about when you refer to somebody as a creative genius, Mm -hmm. very rarely do they ever think of themselves as being genius. And I know our guest is going to talk about creative geniuses. She is. She is. And she has a lot of really interesting things to say, you know, at being a psychologist, uh, a lot of interesting thoughts. But you know what? Genius seems to be a really interesting word because you can use it for influence for good or you can use it for influence in bad. You know, like when you are watching a movie and someone's an evil genius and that's kind of interesting that you would equate genius with that to me. Well, I think it's a characterization Mm -hmm. and it also elevates that evil person to about as high as level as they could get, right? Evil genius. Yeah. Um, meaning that they're gonna, they could do some pretty mean stuff. Exactly. But yeah, I, I really like that word genius, and I certainly have referred to artists that wow, he's a, just a genius in the way he used color or paint or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I certainly have said that about certain musicians. Yeah, uh, they're just so incredibly talented that there's no other word that really befits them other than the word genius. And what's interesting is our guest today is actually going to talk about that. Right, right. And you were going to say? Well, we are going to speak Mm -hmm. with someone who teaches creativity and has some interesting opinions on creativity and on people's lived experiences as well as geniuses. Yeah. So let's start the interview with Nisha Gupta. Hi, Nisha. Thank you for joining us today. I know this is going to be one of those episodes Mm -hmm. where we go deep into creativity, which I think our our listeners are going to really enjoy this I think so. It's always a pleasure to talk to someone that brings new knowledge and thinking when it comes to creativity. Yeah, thank you both for inviting me as a guest on your podcast and, you know, just empowering this platform and space for people to talk about what they love to do most. And for me, that's that's really just living a creative life um, and infusing it into every aspect of psychology, which is kind of my field of what I do, but just, just as a human being. So I'm looking forward to delving deep with both of you. Yeah. Oh, good. We oh, are wonderful. too. Yes. So now we're going to give you our hardest question. Yeah, this is going to be the hardest question, the whole interview which is before we start our interview, we always ask our guest, what did you have for breakfast? I, so I had oatmeal for breakfast and I'm, I'm entering that era of my life where I have to start working on my heart health. And so when I heard this from my doctor, I bought like a 60, a 60 pack of oatmeal to eat every day for breakfast. So I'm going gung ho with the, with the heart health right now. Very good. That's really good though. And, and that's certainly a good thing to uh, contribute to heart health. Never too early or late to take care no. of yourself. Exactly. Never yeah. too early and never too late. And, right. and that's, uh, we're proud to hear you say that. And yeah. also easy to make in the morning if it's the instant packet. So not, yes, not stress-free. Exactly. I'm not much of a cook, so the instant 60 <laughs> seconds, will be right? <laughs> there you go. Hey, it works. Okay, so we know what you're having for breakfast. Could you tell us where are you speaking to us from? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am in my apartment in Atlanta, Georgia. I've lived here for about a little bit more than three years. I moved down to the south from, I was, I've always been up in the northeast, but I took a job at the University of West Georgia, mm-hmm. which is actually in 
rural um, town about an hour away from Atlanta, but I'm a city gal. So I need to be in that, you know, the vibrant energy of, of a city in Atlanta is just a fantastic oh, yeah. creative obviously. Yeah. Well, it's been a creative hub for many years. Oh, yeah. A lot of programming has started in Atlanta. Right? True, true. Yeah, and um, now I think Hollywood is moving to Atlanta, too. So it'll be interesting how it keeps growing over the next couple decades. No, that, I mean, yeah, they are. It's a great place to do production, and the weather is suitable, and just a lot of good reasons to be really great in Atlanta. And the hospitality, I think, hospitality, is real nice I, down the south. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you experienced that. You know, I, I was curious, Nisha, tell us where you're originally from and a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was born and raised in actually like a small rural town in Connecticut mm-hmm. called Easton. Um, it was about an hour outside of New York City, which is where I, I fled when I was 18. <laughs> I mm. lived there for 10 years. Um, but my parents, you know, um, migrated from India to the U.S. for grad school and they mm-hmm. met here, married, and they, you know, moved to this this town and, and had us, three three of us. Um, and my mom is still, my, my dad passed away when I was 19, but my mom still lives in this town. So I go back up north to visit her and I I'm thinking about, you know, your question about childhood in the context of this um, conversation that we're going to have about mm-hmm. creativity. Um, because really, I, you know, I, I think of a childhood in which creativity was really kind of bursting from all corners of, of my house. Um, my dad was an entrepreneur uh, and he built kind of companies um, as a soft computer software developer. Mm. And he just, you know, he, he, he was an entrepreneur. So he had this mind of an inventor, but he also was an early artificial intelligence scientist. This is like the eighties and nineties where he was trying to build a virtual brain, like a virtual consciousness, which still hasn't happened yet in the artificial intelligence world. And so um, you know, when he died, when I was when I was 19, you know, constantly just people talking about him. He's a creative genius, right? Mm-hmm. He's a visionary. And he actually there was a um, he was featured in a book chapter about called Creative Destruction. Well, you would say he was a, he was pioneering this. It oh, looks yeah, like. very much so. Yeah, he, he was trying. And um, I think maybe people thought he was crazy at that time. Right. And now we're, we're all embedded in it. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, so that was my dad. But I think my my mother also in her own right is I'm going to put the creative genius word on her, you know, that goes often to men. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's like much more artful um, with her creativity. So she is just such a brilliant culinary artist. So, like, you know, I, I grew up with her experimenting in the kitchen, but she would, you know, do things with in, interesting, like Indo-Western dishes, like a turkey paneer for Thanksgiving, um, or um, you know, just these little things. And she also is into graphic design and video editing. So there's just this energy, right? This creative energy. I think that's very much been passed down to all of us from from our parents. Wow, that is so interesting. She's she's more of the nurturing kind of creativity, and your dad seemed like he was more on the the logical side yeah. of it. So you got inundated from all, you know, aspects from, of it. What a neat childhood. Sides. Yeah. Do you, yeah. do you have a, um, Nisha, do you have a favorite memory from your childhood? One that you really think about often? 
Well, I'll give you two just in the vein of what we're talking about. One is that my, my mom was also a magician for like some period of her time. So this is, this is like this fun hobbies. And so she actually like made me levitate on a magic carpet oh. um, in a middle school magic show that she put on for, for, for my class. And I was like embarrassed by her magician stuff when I was younger because she always brought it to school. But now I just look back and I'm like, that's amazing, you know, that my, my mother was a magician, you know, um, and then... For myself, I think my creativity at, when I was a kid was really in acting, so theater, drama, production. And I remember um, one birthday party, Aladdin had just come out um, as a Disney movie, and I had the whole birthday party like turn into a like you know um, theater production of the musical Aladdin. How I was Aladdin, my Jasmine. We sung. Yeah, it was it was really fun. So oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Well, that that uh, that's it, a really great memory, though. Yeah, and it speaks to a lot. both of them. It, it speaks a lot to uh, where you headed career-wise. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you? I'm going to get a little more heavy into this. Would you share with us what you mean when you define yourself as a liberation psychologist and an art-based phenomenological researcher? And yes, I had to spell that out phonetically <laughs> yeah, to because say that is a word we do not typically use in our, uh, our lingo. Our lingo. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll get to the arts-based phenomenological research uh, in a bit, but let me, I'll start with the maybe easier one, which is the liberation psychologist. Yes, yeah, please, yeah. Do. please do. Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm describing a, a childhood of, of fun and magic, really, but also, you know, I, I think... I, as, as well as most humans, ex- experienced considerable suffering throughout my life and um, became a psychologist because I wanted to help heal that suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but throughout my own journey and training, I was I was doing psychotherapy for nine years uh, training, but now I, I'm a professor, so I don't uh, practice clinically right now. But what I what I came to find was that a lot of the reasons people suffer are not just, you know, the, the ways that we language it in modern Western society, like um, something brain chemistry, right, um, issues or faulty thinking or, or whatever, but but really because of the social context that we're living in and, and systems of oppression and, you know, being for, for me, you know, a, an Indian American, you know, child of immigrants, queer woman, a lot of my, my own suffering and the suffering of, of people that are minorities around me com- comes from our society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what liberation psychology tries to do is then um, facilitate healing of, of psychological suffering, not just in a therapist's office, but out in the world, really trying to heal these societal wounds that cause um, people to feel so depressed or anxious or even traumatized. And so that's the liberation psychology part of it. Um, And then I can go into the arts-based phenomenological research side. But yeah, like, let me do that. That's So basically, that's how I do it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the method that I've chosen to try to create healing in society and phenomenological research. Wait, let, wait, big, one, wait one yeah. second. Let's talk. Cause sure. I know Angie's going to ask you a question about, Angie's going to ask you a question about that, but I want to go back to the liberation psychology okay. or the psychologist that you do. Um, mm-hmm. If you're talking to lecturing or talking to a group of people, how do you, mm-hmm. what is the first thing you say to them First of all, I suspect you have to identify or they all have to agree 
that they have been experiencing numerous issues in their lives that have made them depressed. Yeah, traumas and traumas, things. Traumas, yeah. et cetera. Do you, mm-hmm. do you start out by helping them recognize that that might be the underlying cause of why they're feeling depressed? I think, yeah, I mean, it depends on what's happening, either if it's in the classroom or I, I was doing therapy through this lens for nine years. But, you know, when people come to therapy, right, there's a lot of shame and self-blame and pathologizing themselves and thinking something's wrong with me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so doing um, therapy through this lens is, is trying to help, like, normalize um that some of the suffering is inevitable given what you and we have been through. I mean, you can just use the pandemic as, as a collective trauma in the world that, you know, if you're feeling depressed, if you're, if you're having a hard time having the energy to get out of bed this past year, I mean, well, you know, all of us are, you know, welcome to the club. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with you. And in fact, you know, if you think that something's wrong with you, that's just going to add to the, the suffering, that there's relief from suffering when you normalize what you're going through as a result of what's happening in the world. And so then that can also apply to types of oppression that, that we all see in the world, like racism, like homophobia, et cetera. Interesting. Very interesting. That is so interesting. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Well, you know, I, I, I wanted to ask about the um, currently researching so what are you currently researching as an art-based phenomenological researcher right now? Yeah, so so my previous work, I'll, I'll just talk about like my, my most recent projects and yes. then we're heading in the future. Um, so, so phenomenological research basically means like studying people's lived experiences of different human phenomena. So we collect stories um, and most of my work I'm starting to move away from it at this point, but it has been about sexual and gender liberation and like queer liberation as well. Um, And so my dissertation, I actually produced a film about the lived experience of being in the closet Mm -hmm. as a queer person. And it was produced based on research participants stories of, of what that experience was like for them to be in the closet. And then my recent, um, uh, research project is, um, it's called Desi Eros, and it's actually a series of surrealist folk art paintings about what reclaiming erotic power means um, for South Asian women um, in the context of, you know, our, our sociocultural history. So this is really coming from also having done a lot of therapy with South Asian women a couple years ago, where issues of, of sexuality uh, were coming into the therapist's office, but also those women had so much power um, and self-love and yeah, just, just resiliency in the face of that. And so I wanted to honor them um, through these, these paintings. And so that's, that's what I've been up to up until this point. Fascinating. Yeah, well, we, we will talk a little bit about your, your art. Um, but I have to say, I can't imagine there are too many psychologists or psychologists psychotherapists that are approaching creativity the way you are. Uh, can you explain to us why you personally chose this path? I just don't think there are a lot of people out there that are looking at it from your perspective. And it probably yeah, it's kind a, of lot a, of that a really has, fresh uh, it, view. Really. And a lot of that probably has to do with the fact, you know, the way you were raised and, and what mm-hmm. the direction that you personally took and maybe some of the trials that you faced in your own life. But 
Can you explain why you moved this in this path? Yeah, well, well maybe I, I want to say also that, you know, I'm, I do arts-based research to kind of study these things of oppression, but I also am a scholar of creativity and I, I teach creativity and creativity, I think, is not just a tool for healing trauma and suffering, but a tool for joy and just loving being human. And um, and really, w- when you ask, when did that start for me or, or why this path? I can think, you know, though I, I've described that it was a part of my childhood, right, mm-hmm. creativity. And, um, you know, my father was called this creative genius and this and that. Like, I think for me, creativity becoming a central part of my life as a psychologist came up about 10 years ago. And at that point, I was starting a meditation practice for the first time mm-hmm. um, in Vipassana Buddhist meditation. And I had gone to India and I did this kind of like 10 day meditation silent retreat. And it was just 10 days of, you know, observing my my bodily sensations and my minds and my thoughts, like the nature of my mind, just observing it without judging it. And I think that's when I really realized that the human mind is a creative mind inherently because when you're watching your mind wander mm-hmm. in its natural state, right, you're seeing that we're just constantly making these innovative connections every single second, right, that our mind's operating. It's kind of like the beauty of daydreaming, you know, it's jumping from thought to thought to thought. And that's really, that's at the heart of creativity, this kind of free associative thinking, these mental leaps that our minds make. And I think I would go as far as to argue that that just makes humans inherently, you know, creative geniuses <laughs> um, by just sheer virtue of having this, this human mind. And so I think creativity became so important to me as a psychologist because the field of psychology works so hard to help people um, heal their minds, you know, um, you know, that, that we often think that our minds produce so much suffering, but I think I really want to help people fall in love with their own minds and learn to befriend their minds with joy and excitement, um, particularly because of, because of the power of creativity, sure. if, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. you, you know, one of the interesting things about creativity, uh, that's the genesis of survival, Early man used creativity to survive. And then mm-hmm. as time went on, and we would learn from early cave paintings that what they were creating had a lot to do with how they were going to survive, but they started to document it. So uh, the psychology of, we, we, I mean, we pride ourselves on our show where we celebrate what people love to do creatively. And we encourage, like your mom, your, your mother yes, is very, very, yes, creative, very creative. And we encourage mm-hmm. that in everybody that we ever talk to. But you, your definition here was really quite uh, enlightening and wonderful to hear. Really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. And you know what? I really like the fact that you, um, you study meditation as well as, incorporating art and as well as working on the mind and you know getting out some of these traumas but it all seems very constructive instead of destructing or deconstructing someone's psyche and trying to you know itemize every single thing that's wrong with you it's more of a let's let's work to make it better in a holistic sort of way yeah absolutely i think my approach to psychology is very much one of trying to focus more on strengths and empowerment than 
pathology um, yeah. in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Very, mm-hmm. very good. And very, you know, you, you don't see that in every single uh, way, maybe a therapist or a psychologist necessarily deals. So this is very, a very cool way to do it. Well, associating mm-hmm. it, the psychology with creativity. Exactly. As exactly. opposed to yeah. positives and negatives. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You, oh, I just wanted to kind of add, um, you had asked about what, what my next art space research project is about. And yes. it's going to be actually about the um, the lived experience of creative madness. Mm. So people that have experienced um, creative brilliance amidst states of madness, whether that's mania, psychosis, whatever it might be. And that's really coming again from this desire. And there's a movement um, in psychology called neurodiversity, which is just really saying like there's no normal way to have a mind. Um, We have diverse styles of consciousness that they come with their gifts and their struggles, all of us. Mm -hmm. And so much of these types of states of consciousness have only focused on the pathology. And so I want want to shed some light on the gift of it. And oftentimes these states of consciousness are very much connected with creativity as well. And so that's, that's kind of, you know, another example of trying to focus on the empowerment Well, if you study and do research on creative people, um, Mm -hmm. many of them certainly had their, they had their issues (laughs) and Mm -hmm. uh, some of them were deeply depressed and the only time they ever felt comfortable, I don't need to tell you this, uh, Nisha, the only time they ever felt comfortable was when they were actually uh, creating and then when the creating stopped, that's when they went back into their uh, mind cave, if you will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, let's get into your teaching courses in psychology of creativity at university. What does that entail for you? Yeah, I mean, it's going off of um, what we're talking about is like, what, what is the role of creativity in the arts for our psychology? <laughs> Certainly, right? Um, right, and right. So- um, and I, I teach uh, I teach the psychology of creativity to both undergrad and grad students. And what's really interesting is at the beginning, you know, there is always this imposter syndrome or or a fear of claiming that one is a creative person. And so my argument at the beginning of the class is like by the end of the semester, I'm going to have convinced all of us that we are creative geniuses. <laughs> and that, that is my goal. But I think that there needs to be a bit of that grandiosity mm-hmm. um, for students to believe in the power of their own minds and the power of their ideas. And so the way I teach it, it's not just arts-based. There's certainly um, components that are, we go into art therapy and we go into arts-based research. We go into the link between madness and creativity and the artists we study like Van Gogh, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we also study just the psychology of innovation. Um, what does it mean for the mind to birth ideas? And I think I think anybody, you know, I, I teach PhD students. So these are students that are birthing new knowledge, right, into the field. Right. They're trying to evolve the field. And so I think a lot of what people do is inherently a creative process, even if they don't realize it. You might think you're doing just scholarship or research, but but what you're doing is very similar to what the artist is doing um, on the canvas. And so we study that. And I think my goal is to help people trust their creative process and believe in themselves, really. What is the most interesting question you received after you've lectured to your students? What is the most interesting question? So I actually don't lecture as much in these classes as create dialogue. 
Um, so, so it's so when you're having the two-way dialogue, I'm sure mm-hmm. there's some interesting comments or being one that, made, yeah, or one that comes up consistently where you go, you know, every single time you you give a lecture, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to get this question. <laughs> um, I, I okay, I'll be honest. A question isn't coming to mind as much as a common comment, okay, or theme that comes to mind, which is. Oh, this isn't good, but oh, but this isn't this. It's an evaluation mm-hmm. uh, that the students have. It's 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 very hard to detach your own ego to your ideas and your work. But I think that, and so I think that I noticed that a lot. There's a lot of that inner critic at yeah. the beginning of the semester, um, and it comes up a lot. People, and it's very hard for students to share their work. Um, my goal throughout the process is to to help students almost detach from their ideas um, a little bit, like realize um, this is going to be quirky. And this kind of goes to my theories or philosophies of creativity, mm-hmm. but it, it's influenced by, have you guys read the book um, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? Uh, no, we have no, not. No, we have not. Uh, she's, she's the author of Eat, Pray, Love, you know. The- oh, yes, oh, yeah. Yes, okay, yes. okay. We know what you're talking about yeah. now. Yeah. So recently she's been writing just about the creative process. And this is a fantastic book. Um, and in it, what she kind of, she brings us back to this idea of dancing with the muse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she almost talks about like, we don't produce our ideas. They come and they, they find us. Mm-hmm. The idea, like ideas select people who they, these ideas like have these entities of their own. They're these entities of their own, right? And they they find people that they think can bring them to life. Hmm. That's and, a philosophy that we've always had. I've experienced that in my no, life ever cool. since I was two years old. And I often wonder where that comes from. But when it does hit, I grab onto it. And, and the one thing I make sure I don't do is I don't give myself credit for it. I just say, mm-hmm. This is something that was a special gift to me from I don't know where, but I appreciate it very much. A lot of people yes. go, a lot of people get those ideas and they go, gosh, I'm so brilliant. I'm, I'm you know? wonderful. And I, and I realize that that brilliance <laughs> is is fed to you. It's always been an, kind of an interesting feeling and philosophy that I've had. I know what you're talking about now. I didn't recognize yeah. the author. Yeah, but I like immediately. We I didn't immediately either. know what you're talking but about. But I wrote down the title because I'm, I'm going to look it up as soon as we're done. <laughs> but, you know, one of the reasons we're excited to have you as a guest mm-hmm. was that you have a variety of theories when it comes to the creative process and how people embrace it. Uh, share with us your philosophy. You've been sharing a little bit all yeah, along. Yeah. But right now, mm-hmm. maybe this might be a little bit more directed to uh, your lay listeners like me mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and or our listeners in general. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll elaborate a little bit on this idea um, and, and link it back to this idea of creative genius, too, because, you know, I, I'm inspired by the the previous definition of genius, which was not that a person is a genius, um, but that I think it was the the Romans who said that humans all have geniuses we have geniuses which is like a divine like muse that kind of follow us follows us around and speaks to us it's it's not you know this is a connection we have with what you could call something like divine inspiration right or intuition um that eureka moment that strikes us um uh that insight that comes to us it's being gifted to us i love that language you used um by by this kind of 
um, divine source, I think. And so this is also, um, I can put it into theories. This is Carl Jung is a, a depth psychologist who really, um, mm-hmm. in the West kind of, um, people will credit him for birthing Western versions of art therapy yep. because he really believed in surrendering our reason and logic and being able to um, attune to our divine intuition um, that comes from, you know, that connects us with the unconscious and with this higher power and it speaks to us through images. And so by making art, um, we get into close contact with, with, you know, the truth of this, this divine power. Um, in Hinduism, the um, uh, word for creative genius is called pratika. And that word is, oh, sorry, pratiba. Um, that word translates to divine poetic intuition that comes from God. And so in India, you know, this idea of like, where does the poetry come? The poetry mm-hmm. comes from this divine source that needs to be listened to through things like meditation and yoga practice, which yeah. art can certainly be a part of. You yeah. have to tune into that channel. Yeah, you do. That's, that's what it gets really down do. to is tuning into that channel. What were you going to ask? Um, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you oh, no, I just wanted to say, absolutely. It's a tuning in, which is which is hard, I think, in our modern society and our Western society to trust that. That's because the airwaves are crowded with a bunch of junk out there and you have to. There's a lot of distractions. There's so yeah, many distractions right now. Um, I think you have to detach from a lot of the online stuff and news and well, negativity. Medi- and that's where meditation comes in. Yeah, I guess. that way you can you can kind of edit out all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, you know, I would like to know more about your thoughts on how art and creativity can facilitate healing in response to societal oppression. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's kind of interesting how much of my work is also maybe influenced by my spiritual perspective as a person, as a psychologist, because I think there is a lot of coming from that meditation um uh, perspective, such an um, emphasis on compassion mm-hmm. and how our world is hurting so much because there isn't enough empathy and compassion and a sense of interconnectedness between us. And I think art can really do that. I think art can be a vehicle that helps people reconnect with empathy and compassion and a feeling of interconnectedness with others. And so, you know, when I made my film about being in the closet as a queer person, I made it in such a way that that my goal for it was to invite people into a visceral state of empathy and compassion for the closeted experience so that they emerge from viewing the film with 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 love and care. You can use the, you know, the Buddhist idea of loving kindness, right? Right. right. Um, towards que- queer people um, or even themselves uh, as a queer person. So, um, so that's really, I think that there's so much power in art to be a vehicle for for empathy and compassion and to bring us together. It's almost like an antidote to the more polarizing types of media out in the world right now. Yeah, um, if we if we think of art in that way. Yeah. That's uh, very true. Well, and you know what a what a great way to bring more positivity into just loving one another, no matter who or what, wherever you live, it doesn't matter. And understanding the next question, I agree. The next question I'm going to ask you, um, 
maybe go for a little bit of a short answer only because you've covered so much of this yeah. already. Uh, but your life seems to be dedicated to understanding society's impact on the individual and trying to cultivate societal or collective healing. What, uh, what would you tell us about that? Yeah, maybe building off of what, what was just spoken about, I, I think my life is becoming increasingly about what it means to love um, and what it means to love as a societal imperative. Um, we think about love in terms of romantic love, but there's agape love. There is universal love. Um, there's love between friends, between neighbors, a brotherhood of love. Um, and I think that most, I think that's what my work is gearing towards, frankly. I, I sense myself doing that more in my classrooms these days. Mm -hmm. I have classrooms that have extreme political and cultural diversity in them. And my goal is to find ways for us to come together in love again and imagine, this is creativity too, right? Imagine a future that, that has love as, as its primary ethic in our society and work together to try to invent that future. I think that all types of social justice movements have emphasized love and also emphasized creativity as a way to imagine a better future and create that together. And so I think that's really what my work is, is about. Well, you've got a big challenge ahead of you because there's a lot of divisiveness out there and it seems to be becoming mm -hmm. more and more pronounced worldwide it's us yeah. against them and you against I. And uh, mm -hmm. it would be nice if people could find common ground and not be so um, angry. And uh, yes. that's yes. it's really gets down to anger. Yeah, and judgmental. And, and judgment, then, yeah, anger and judgment. And, and then the pandemic has created a lot of anger in this world because people are sitting at home and they're looking for people. I don't need to tell you this, you know, all this stuff, but they're trying to find ways to blame other people for this search situation that they're in. And, you know, hopefully someday we'll get past all that. Um, what do you, what do you, Nisha, what do you think is the number one thing that our listeners can learn from your journey as a professor and a psychologist and an artist? Yeah, I think, I think I would say maybe to, to not be afraid of your own mind, <laughs> you know, and this, this is this idea that a lot of people run from their minds. They don't want to be alone with their minds. You can think about even the pandemic making people social distance and have to withdraw into themselves and how hard that was for a lot of people or it continues to be because it's hard to be alone with your mind. But I think that once you can learn to relate to your mind in a more, friendly way. Mm -hmm. I think that you just notice it's the, the um, hub of, of power and is particularly because of the creativity of our minds and that by tuning in, you know, by, by first not being afraid of our minds, then we can tune into the splendor of our minds. And I think that's where, where these ideas are being gifted to us and they're just waiting for us to notice them. So yeah, absolutely it, true it, on that one. Well, I made a quote the other day about the mm. person that lives with inside you needs to be your best friend because that's who you chat well, with true. all you day did. long. You did. And if you don't like that person, you're in big trouble. Yeah. Okay. So true. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, I, uh, Nisha, we know you are a very talented artist yourself. Tell us about how and when you started that form of creative expression for yourself. 
Yeah. I, well, it's kind of interesting. So thank you for saying that. First of all, I have to have complete imposter syndrome about my art. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, it's interesting because as when I was a younger, my art um, expressed itself through words, poetry. And I think I've had more confidence um, with the written word. Um, I'm confident as a writer. I'm not uh, as a visual artist, but I have noticed that a lot of my ideas that are gifted to me want to be expressed visually. That's what they want. Uh-huh. And so what I've what I've had to learn is the skills to put them out into the world. And so my dissertation film, it told me it wanted to be expressed as a film. It's like, no, Nisha, you got to make a film. And I'd never made a film before. So I had to go to film school during, you know, I was already in psychology school and in, in a PhD program and I had I had took film classes to learn to make a film to birth the idea to life and um then i started painting about five years ago actually as a self-soothing art therapy thing to just get through dissertation writing Uh and i realized i really loved it um and then my next project it came to me it wanted to be produced as a series of paintings acrylic paintings and so i had i just painted a lot of stuff to learn to paint uh (laughs) to, to bring these images to life and um so I'm, I'm finally taking a painting class for the first time tonight, actually, every Wednesday, expressionist painting, because I'd like to move beyond the self, you know, the self-teaching and, and learn more specific things like color theory and all that, you know, all of the fundamentals um, to really actualize um, some of these visions visually. Wow. <laughs> That's really, <laughs> talk about really getting into your visual creative side and, you know, having to learn even filmmaking to express your creativity that you're being inspired. That is, that is really wonderful that you just took, you know, the opportunity and just ran with it. Yeah. It's also, it's sometimes it's kind of annoying. Like I get a little bit annoyed with my muse because it gives me ideas that like, I don't know how to <laughs> yes. do yet. Yes. And then I have to go learn and that's just like, you know, then I have to just do more work, <laughs> but, but maybe it, it's, it's hopeful for me. Maybe it believes in me, you know, <laughs> you need to give your muse a list. Now I know, I know how to do all this stuff. Let's concentrate on this for yeah. now and not add anything I'm new. Doing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now Nisha, I'm going to ask you a question about your, um, your writing. I know we kind of skipped over this, but then we kind of talked about it, but we should point out you are a writer and you've written numerous publications as a scholar. Can you share your thoughts and ideas with the written word? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like I'm a, right now I'm a tenure track professor and I'm up for tenure next year. Right. And so a lot of tenure at universities depends on our publications, writing our scholarly articles. And so I do that. It's very enjoyable for me to put my ideas um, about psychology and research out into the world. But what I'm also noticing is that I used to write more personally, right? Like I actually took a memoir writing class after my father passed away when I was young in my early twenties. And I wrote a whole Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, I wrote a whole book about growing up through grief, you know, and how the coming of age through losing my father suddenly. And there was such vulnerability in my writing then. And I think I, I think as a scholar, when you write, you kind of lose some of that, right? Um, uh, you have to write in a certain way that actually mm-hmm. edits out sometimes mm-hmm. your, your humanness. And so, 
I think I would really like to at some point go back into maybe creative nonfiction um, and write in a more vulnerable way. But I also just think it takes a lot of courage to to put yourself out there through writing. You know, you reveal so much when you write. Oh, definitely. And I think your personal experiences with grief and, you know, revisiting that, I think that would be very interesting for you to. uh, Yeah. And your drive, your own personal drive. I mean, you're a highly accomplished person. Uh You've spent a lot of time dedicating yourself to your own education and teaching others. I mean, that's pretty admirable. And expressing your own creativity. Mm -hmm. If you could tell someone how to live more creatively fulfilled, what would you say? Yeah, how to tell somebody how to live more creatively fulfilled. I think my mind goes straight to the psychologist, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Have you heard of, you know, the flow state? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I always teach that in my classes. and I love um, his vision of basically finding any activity in your life that creates this state of flow for you, which is this complete immersion in the activity itself, just out of the joy of doing it for itself with no other reason. And um, really just your entire attention being immersed in the present moment of, of the bliss of the activity and its challenges. Um, and so, you know, I always have my students at the beginning of the class find that one thing that brings them into a flow state and do more of it. And they even write a poem about the flow state they experience. And we do this whole open mic poetry night where they read their flow state poems out loud. And it's just so much fun. I think what we need in our lives is fun and joy. And I think that's what creative flow brings us. And so I would definitely say like, find that activity that brings you flow. You know, it's probably more difficult for men than it is for women. I think anyway, is usually when we think about doing something creative, we're always trying to figure out how to monetize it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what what am I going to, if I put out all this effort, is what's my ROI? What's my return on investment yeah. of time? Yeah. And it's unfortunate because there was a time when, when throughout history, when men would actually have hobbies, you know, they'd come home after a hard day of work and they may have worked on a, a puzzle or or build a piece of furniture, or even maintain their garden. And it seems like the way society moves so fast nowadays that just having that time to yourself to just be creative and not worry about who's going to see it, who's going to look at it, or can I make a buck off of my effort? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's unfortunate, but I think that paradigm has shifted. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad to see that that's something that you're uh, teaching people teaching people yeah. to reattune or get back to that. Yeah. Let, let it go and, and go with the flow. Yeah. And yet I'm a giant hypocrite. I'm just going to say I'm really <laughs> trying to NFT my art right now. And it's very difficult. I would like to, I, you know, there's this desire in a capitalistic society to see if you can make money, right? And NFT is exploding. So, you know, it's always a struggle doing things for its own sake versus doing things for capitalistic games, right? Well, part (laughs) part of the problem with art, too, it depends upon how, uh, for lack of a better term, emotionally stable a person is, because a lot of times Mm -hmm. that is the only way they ever feel like they are being recognized or that their art has value. If somebody is willing to hand them a check, then they go, oh, I must be good enough for somebody to want to pay me. Or like you said, you, you get rid of the imposter syndrome when somebody actually hands you a check with for your art or your writing 
and you feel validated. Yeah. It's validation. Yeah, That's validated. the key word there, validation. Yeah. Yeah. Makes me wonder what Van Gogh went through during his lifetime when he, you know, I think he, what did he sell, like one or two paintings or, or none? I'm not even sure. No, actually, um, actually, ultimately, there were a couple that were sold through his brother, Theo, but he was <laughs> always trying to get recognized for his creativity, yeah. in, and it was very difficult for him. But that in itself kind of led him even though he was having some issues with his own mental health, he was having challenges there. That in itself led to his genius as an artist. Sometimes Mm -hmm. not being recognized may be the very best thing that can happen to an artist because so Mm -hmm. often the great artists of the world become discovered long after they passed away. Posthumously, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of that has to do with people trying to make a buck off of them. Um, But yeah, very Mm -hmm. interesting. Very all right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, now we are to the portion of the program where we ask this question that we ask everyone and, and their answers are always so fascinating because they're very different. And it is if you could sit on a park bench and chat with anyone from the past, who would it be? Well, you know, it would be my father. <laughs> yeah, we suspected. You know, yeah. Yeah. But I'm thinking of like what I would like to do. And I almost would want to do this very podcast that you're doing with me with him. (laughs) I would want to ask him these fantastic questions about his own. You know, I never got a chance to. Right. I was um, as a teenager when he died, you know, I was kind of like in my own teenage angst stuff. Right. So there wasn't a lot of curiosity I had about his own mind and his own um, journey, um, as a, as a creator. Um, and so I I would just love to, I would love to get to know my father's mind better by hearing him describe it, the, the joys of it, the quirks of it, the struggles of it. Um, I think, I think I could learn a lot more about myself also through understanding the workings of my father's mind. Um, and it might be something I do actually with my mom because she's still here and she also um, has that magic to her. And so, you know, it makes you think, I love this question. It makes you think, who do you want to have these kinds of conversations with while, they, while they're here with you? Well, That's I think so your father, true. I think your answer is an excellent one. And mm-hmm. your mother probably can share things about your father that you would have mm-hmm. not known. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. she was married to him, raised three children with him. And there's a lot of things that she would know about him and maybe some people that he worked with. But that's, um, you know, we only wish that could be the case. Yeah. Yeah. It's always that way. I think when when you lose someone and then you're like, oh, I was so young and I didn't ask these questions. I wish I had, you know, had the mind to ask them. But you're, you know, you're going through your own growing process. But, you know, that a lot of times that happens in everybody's lifetime. I mean, they could be in their you know, 50s and 60s, and then all of a sudden their parents pass on, and then they look back and they go, oh, I wish I wasn't such a jerk to my mom or to my father, or I wish I listened <laughs> yeah. to them, or I, I know they gave me good advice and I never paid attention yeah. to it. You know, that yeah. whole thing, honor thy mother and father, really should be prevalent in everybody's mind when they're younger, Yeah, not after they <laughs> lose their parents. Yeah. But, you know, what's really beautiful is I almost feel like there is a theory in psychology called continuing bonds theory, which is that we only lose people physically, but like not necessarily the relationship with them. And I almost experience almost in this transpersonal way, like a a more of a closer, intimate relationship with my father now than I had as a young person 
by sheer virtue of what I'm doing in the world. And, and, you know, I'm teaching creativity, I'm teaching divergent thinking, and this was his life. Um, and, you know, he was featured in a book chapter about divergent thinking, and this is now what I do for a living. And so in certain ways, it's, I feel, I feel this connection with him and it makes me smile. I think it comes through, Anisha, I really think it comes Mm -hmm. through in in what you've shared with us and how you live your life. I mean, you have uh, a hidden tutor that is always there for you and you just have Mm -hmm. to open Mm -hmm. up and let it flow through you. I I highly suspect that that is happening. Yeah. Uh That makes me happy. Yeah, I bet. I bet bet. it does. I bet it does. Well, excuse me, Anisha, thank you for... um, this wonderful interview and the many uh, facets and elements when it comes to creativity that you shared with us. Yeah. I especially liked your last answer. Yeah. I think that is very heartfelt, very meaningful. And I think that there's so many people out there that can really relate to what you just said and all the other things that you shared with us. They're very insightful. And thank you. We really appreciate having you as a guest. Yes, Nisha. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about creativity today. And now comes the time that I need to let our listeners know if you'd like to know more about Nisha, we will have links for her under the show guest tab on thoughtrowpodcast.com so everyone can learn more about her and connect. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for um, not only empowering my my work and my art through this platform, but also just having this conversation with me. It, it's actually it was it's such a meaningful conversation that I, I just had with you, and it'll stay with me. And so, just thank you. You're very oh, kind. You're very we appreciate kind. that Welcome comment so much. And that's a two way street. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone's going to really appreciate this uh, podcast and your interview. So we will chat again. Thank you. Okay. All right. Hey, Take care. Bye bye. I'm really glad you tuned in today. We hope you enjoyed the thoughts and ideas we shared with you. We post a new podcast every week, so remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. So it's bye for now from my husband Rod and I, wishing everyone a great day.